Good morning. I'm uh, going to be working off my iPad here, if that's okay. Oh, it's great to be out here. I, uh, this is my first time on this side of the country. I realize I've traveled to, I think, 50 different countries. I've traveled pretty extensively around the world, and I've never been over here. And it, like the way I'm being treated now, I don't think I ever want to go back. So, um, Except you notice know, I'm wearing a, an Eagles shirt, so I hear you play some other kinds of sports out here besides rugby league, which I thought was the only sport that was played. Um, so this was the closest I could get was an Eagle, because right, you, you support some Eagle-y team out this side. Of the, is that right? Um, so this is part of where I'm from, too. I, I've spent the last 28 years in Philadelphia, or actually last two years in Sydney, but prior to that in Philadelphia, and share a bit more about that. Um, Fascinating passage. When, uh, when I was talking particularly to Kevin about coming out and, and was really honoured to be invited out, and I said, you know, come watch your, watch your passage and watch your theme. And, and he gave me this, this part of Mary talking to Jesus and saying, you know, telling the servants, just go do what he says. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. That I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody at a missions conference use that passage. I, I preached on it not too long ago at our church, and I never thought about using it as a missions, and I thought, well, maybe you've gone to the book of Acts, or maybe we go to Jesus sending the disciples out numerous times. We could have gone to Jonah, but he went to a wedding in Cana, and I thought, wow, this is odd. So I had to spend quite a bit of time studying this to try and figure out where they were coming from, what was, what was, whether Kevin came up with this on his own, I don't know, or who came up with it, but I was like, all right, what kind of church is this? Um, <laughs> But this is perfect. This is, this is an amazing passage to come to. Uh, I'll be very careful. When I preach this, I actually upset a couple of our older ladies because I, I kind of tried to modernize the story. And, and I said, you know, basically Mary was asking Jesus to go down to the bottle shop and grab some beer and bring it back. And, and they didn't quite like that, that angle. But really, it's, right, this is Jesus in an everyday setting. He's grown up in this community, he's grown up in this context, his friends are here, his family's here, and that's what he's doing. He's just hanging out in the kind of places that people would hang out in. It could be a Friday night barbecue that you're at, it could be Sunday luncheon, um, it could be a work event, it could be something like the wedding. And that's where we find Jesus, and that's where we mostly find Jesus, is just turning up in everyday life, just hanging out with his mates, hanging out with his family. And they run out of alcohol. Now, I don't drink. I haven't drunk for a very long time. I worked with a lot of people who have drug and alcohol issues, and so having alcohol in the house wasn't a good idea, and we had a dry policy at our church. And when that ended, I figured I didn't really know what it meant to drink anymore, so I stayed away from it. But alcohol's consumed quite a bit. Seems like a good thing to keep people a little happy in, in places. Maybe that's why we do it in church sometimes, where you serve alcohol, right? Get people in the right mood. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the... The alcohol's run out. And so Mary comes to Jesus. Now, why did she come to her son? Maybe that's what happens. I know my mum, my mum's in a nursing home now, but she calls me all the time for the weirdest things. You know, can you get me an avocado at the store? You know, can you bring me a Bible? That was kind of a nice one. Um, can you come and move a piece of furniture? Uh, I'm fighting with the ladies that I sit with at the table. Can you come and tell them what they should be doing and, and how they should be acting differently? But comes to, his mum comes to him and asks him a question. Now, she knew from the beginning that he was called to be the saviour. But at different points we see along the story that, that she was struggling. Is this really going to happen? Is this really what's going to take place? Uh, there's another part of, of the story where we have... Um, 
She's come with the rest of the family to get Jesus because people are starting to think he's a bit crazy and like, hey, my son's acting a little crazy. Let's go get him. Um, so she was kind of in this up and down. But she asked him a question, you know, can you take care of this son? And his response um, seems kind of rude. He calls her woman. I know what happened if I called my mum woman. Um, I wouldn't be, I'd be ducking pretty quickly. Um, but he says, woman, you know, why are you asking me? Now, I think it's actually, if we translated it, we could translate it a little bit differently and it would be a much, much softer response. But he says, you know, why are you asking me? This isn't my time yet. Um, and I wonder if she's looking like, well, I wasn't really asking you to do anything like save the world right now. I'm just asking you, can you take care of this issue of we've run out of some, some wine at the wedding? Even though he, he gives her this answer of a negative, she still tells the servants to do whatever he says. It's quite powerful. Do whatever he says. She put a lot of faith and a lot of trust in her son. Now, as the first miracle, we know it goes on and he turns water into wine. I'm not sure. If I was going to do my first miracle, I'm not sure if that would be my first miracle. I might go for a healing, giving somebody sight back, maybe a big feeding. This one seems almost flippant. But I think it's a powerful part in that it's happening in everyday life. It's just something that happens in everyday life. We've run out of something. We need some more. I'm going to ask somebody who can take care of that. Then I actually thought really about what Kevin was asking and, and what the team was asking and thought, you know, this is about the servants. The question is to the servants. Wouldn't it be really great to be part of a miracle? Like to be that kid who comes up with his lunch to the disciples and says, look, I've got a little bit of lunch here. I don't mind sharing it. I mean, I know there's somewhere between five and 15,000 people here, but you can have a few bit of my bread and some of my, my fish, you know, make a few fish sandwiches here. Wouldn't it be cool to be that guy? But in this story, wouldn't it be amazing to be the servants? Because you get part of the first miracle that's recorded in the, New, in the New Testament, to be part of the first miracle. And all you had to do was go out the back and fill some jugs with water and bring it back in again. It's really that simple. And so I'm going to break things into kind of two parts, this week and next week. If this week's no good, then you probably won't come back. But if this week's good enough, then you'll get to hear the second part. And this week is about the go. The go, and then next week we'll get to the do. Go and then do. And how simple can it be to be one of these servants, just in the, the real simple fact, and letting God do the amazing stuff that he does? Now, we've got lots of examples through the Bible of going. Um, the one that we talk about a lot is Jonah. Jonah, I've, I've preached a lot on Jonah. I use Jonah a lot when I, when I teach. Um, because Jonah is a fascinating character in that here's a guy who didn't want to go and do anything. Um, I would say he's a, he's a blanket racist. He hated the people that he was sent to, didn't want to have anything to do with them. God sends him out. Uh, he goes the opposite direction. We all know that story. Then he gets brought back again. He finally goes to the town, and he's probably the worst evangelist in the entire Bible, right? Because I think he's walking through town and saying, um, a little, not quite like this morning, but the message repent or go to hell, and he's like, and I hope you all go to hell, right? I want to see you all go to hell. I don't want to see any of you in heaven. This is Jonah's message. The entire city repents. There's no other account like it of an entire city that doesn't know God turning to faith in God. Now, in our context, I work in, in poor communities. That's where my work has been uh, all, my, all my ministry life. 
Um, we talk about the, that story particularly because uh, I believe that the movement of transforming that entire city happened on the fringes or the margins amongst the poor. That Jonah would have begun his work on the outskirts, which is where the poor tended to be, at the city gates, they were begging. Um, the women involved with prostitution would have been at the city gates. That's where the message is. And it actually spreads through the entire city, outpaces Jonah, reaches the king, and the king calls everybody to account. Um, oftentimes, I think we, we often have the opposite. If we reach the highest person, then, then it kind of trickles down. Um, we actually think that if you, if you start in the, what we call the, the pools of grace, the most broken communities, that's actually then it, it flows upwards from there. Um, we've got Jonah with a bad attitude, um, but eventually he goes and an entire city is transformed. I run a training program we've, we've launched in the last three months. So, so part of my job was to evaluate what was going on in Sydney across, across the entire city, um, not just from the groups that I work with, but from anybody and, and work in poor communities. And we found that there was very little work happening in poor communities uh, in Sydney. In fact, the Anglicans have 400 churches in Sydney. Uh, 30 of those are identified to be in poor communities. Only about four of those actually work with the poor in, in what we call in a, in a positive or asset space, where they see people from the poor community not as a place that you go and do missions to, but actually as, as vital to the community. And uh, so we've got only about three churches, three or four churches working in this. So we launched a new training. We're training pastors. We have 11 um, new trainee pastors in our program from eight different ethnicities, uh, really wide-ranging, quite, quite a challenge to teach people from, from that wider uh, of ethnicity background. But, but our training is called The Well, and we've taken the name from the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman that, that Jesus encounters. Uh, and if you know that story, it's, it's quite an amazing one. Jesus hanging out at the well. He sent his friends in to get food. Um, he's, he's waiting. A uh, woman turns up. A woman of very questionable character, so first of all, she was a Samaritan, so the Jews referred to them as, as half-breeds or dogs regularly. Um, she had very questionable things about how many husbands she'd had. What happened to her husbands? Was she knocking them off? Um, or was she just such a terrible wife they kept getting rid of her? Or was she cheating on them? Um, probably if she was cheating on them, she would have been stoned by this point. So questionable character. He has about a five, ten-minute conversation with her, and then he tells her to go. Go back to your town. She goes back to her town, delivers the message, and people's lives are transformed. Uh, no training. She didn't go to Bible college, didn't do two years of internships anywhere. Uh, five minutes with Jesus, and then she had gone. Quite an amazing story. Uh, I, I think, I wonder about her, right? So if, if you've got questionable character, if you're kind of that person in town that everybody's like, I just don't want to be around them, I don't trust them, um, they're kind of a bit of an outcast, what would it be if Jesus came and told you to go and do something? Um, would you be embarrassed or would you be, be shy or would you be ashamed? And I thought, actually, people who first encounter Jesus tend to be the most bold when it comes to talking to others about Jesus. Um, they haven't been taught yet you're not supposed to talk about Jesus, right? They, they just think, I want to share this great news. I was thinking of a guy the other day, his, his name's Dave, and he comes to our church. We've, we've had an influx of, influx, we're a small church, we've had an influx of single men kind of my age who've started coming to church post-COVID. Um, we think it's connected with being lonely, isolated, uh, but they're looking for something. And, and Dave is one of these guys, and, and we've had a number of them, and you'll get a phone call, and it'll be like, can I come to church? I was like, yeah, yeah, church is open. Any, anybody can come. Um, I don't have a suit. Do I need to wear a suit? I said, well, I dressed up today, and so if you can match this, you're well-dressed. If you can wear shorts, thongs, T-shirt, you, you'll fit in. Um, and he says, I can't read and write. Is that still okay if I come to church? 
It's like, yeah, yeah, you're always welcome. Uh, and so David, then now he brings his family. His, his sister comes. His wife has, is quite ill, but she comes when she can. And, uh, and then the other day, he brought some other friends. And uh, they were just his childhood friends. Because he doesn't know any better, right? You can just invite your friends to church. And uh, we're standing there talking, and we're talking something about language. And I was, I was telling a story about a, a, quite a well-known guy in Sydney who is a very strong Christian, but doesn't really talk much about it in, in his job. He's got a, he's a high-profile job. But he says on his board... Um, that he just doesn't swear. He said everybody else was swearing on the board. And he said after about six months, all the swearing's gone. He didn't, he didn't say anything, didn't do anything. He's just kind of caught on to others. And I was telling this story and, and this other couple were there and the guy says, you know, yeah, I have a bit of a tr- trouble with swearing. And he confirms it with every sentence that he says from there on. You know, he's a swear word and he keeps apologizing. My wife's there in the church. And, and afterwards, I see Dave and he goes, they want to come back. They want to come to church again. I was like, well, that's great. He goes, do you think it's okay? Like, they're pretty rough. I said, I said, well, how did you feel when you came? He goes, yeah, I seemed like it was all right. No one kicked me out. I said, I think it's okay for your friends to come. And so this woman, the Samaritan woman, when she goes, I think she just goes with this great excitement. I think she just kind of forgets how everybody must have seen her and thought of her. And she's like, I've got to tell you about this thing because it has changed my life. And so she goes back into a town and begins telling him. She goes. Then we have Peter. We talk lots and lots about Peter. Peter usually gets, I think, a pretty bad rap for the disciples, right? We like to point out all the negative things that he's done over time. But Peter went. And, and he went into some really hard places, and he knew it was going to be hard. Jesus had told him pretty clearly, Peter, you know what? From now on, this is going to get rough. You're going to have to go places that you don't want to go and do things that you're probably not going to want to do at the time. And people are going to hate you, and they're going to kill you. And it's going to be all done. And yet Peter still went. Peter still went into these hard places. And you see his ups and downs. And I think his ups and downs are written so that we can see there's so many ups and downs in what goes on. But Peter went. Peter went out there. And I've thought a lot about this idea of, of going or not going. So I, I, I like, love to follow sports. I follow sports. And uh, one of the things that's most important about sports is that if your best player isn't playing, they're not your best player anymore. In fact, they're not a player at all. Because if you're not on the field, then it doesn't really matter how good you are. And uh, so I've, I've worked with a lot of people in, in Philadelphia. I probably worked with between four and 500 churches in consulting. Um, I've, I've mentored a lot of people. We've had lots of people stay with our family. Uh, I taught at a Christian university for eight years and at another place for another four or five years before that. So I've, I've taught and trained a lot of people. And uh, the most important thing that I always say to them is if you don't turn up, you're not much use to anybody. If you're not actually there, you're not much use to anybody. And I've seen the most talented people, gifted in ministry, gifted musicians. I'm like, but if you don't get on the field, there's really no point in all your giftings. And we'd actually say the most important gift to do ministry is the ability to turn up and keep turning up, resilience or perseverance. Um, that's part of when I bike ride. I'm not a very good rider, but I, I don't give up. I, I stick with it. And uh, I just talked to a guy on, on the weekend. He's a police officer, works with those involved with uh, sex crimes. Tough job. And uh, we're chatting a bit, and he's, he's not a Christian, and... Um, 
he had just finished this thing called Everesting, which I think is one of the dumber things to do in bike riding. But you basically figure out how high Mount Everest is and just keep riding up and down hills until you've got to that. And I, I think it took him 23 hours. I mean, he's a really good bike rider, but 23 hours. I think I could find something else to do for 23 hours. Um, but Everest, and, and we talked about this idea of resilience, this sticking with it. And he said, yeah, that was the hardest, these, these tough points. What got you through it? Somebody came along beside me. Somebody rode with me. Somebody cheered me on. I managed to get through that. And we talked about how that characteristic transfers over into the rest of your life, being able to stick with it. Um, when you're dealing with really hard things, being able to stick with it and stay with it. Um, they're the characteristics that you often hear in sports. The, those players that just make it. They, they, they just keep going. They don't give up. Um, being able to be talented never compares to being able to be resilient or keep turning up or showing up. I thought about this as well. My eldest daughter, Saye, uh, has, has quite a remarkable story. Um, so she's adopted. Her biological mother used to live with us. Uh, her bi- biological mother was, a, um, at the time, had been a, a drug dealer, probably since she was 13 or 14. Um, she came in to live with us for a period of time to... There was a contract out on her, so as church families, we were considered to be safe havens, um, and the local uh, drug trade, drug dealers, didn't touch people who live with, with church families, um, or staff families at least. Uh, Saye was born, so she was born addicted to, to crack cocaine, um, damaged by some other things as well, and uh, her mother went to, to jail for a period of time and left her with her grandma. Her grandma had to go away as well, and so they left her with us, and we lived in a... In a a much less formal, much less regulated system than, than exists in Australia at this point. So uh, no one actually... We'd never had any paperwork on our daughter for, I think, the first eight years. I mean, but we enrolled her in school and took her places. Um, Say's so an amazing girl, but she's, she's had various health issues. And, and so she was uh, diagnosed with a thing, aplastic anemia. So I guess our doctors here could, could tell you a better description, but I like to say it's, it's a little bit like leukaemia, except not not cancerous, it can be cured, it doesn't, doesn't come back. Um, but quite, quite challenging, and as an adopted girl with no biological siblings, uh, the donor list, no one wanted to donate um, bone marrow to her, so uh, it was quite a high-risk operation, fairly low success rate for, for people like her. She, she's part Puerto Rican, um, part other uh, non-white, so, so quite difficult to find matches. Uh, so... We were incredibly blessed to um, get in contact with one of the best surgeons in the world, and they had just come up with an experimental treatment to, that would fit her category perfectly. Uh, and so her life was saved through this. Uh, it was quite, quite remarkable. Um, but I always thought that a surgeon, no matter how good he was, if he didn't actually come into her room and take control of the treatment, he wasn't much good to us. He would never have helped us. Uh, all his talent in the world was no good if he didn't actually come and do anything. Uh, so turning up, being present, going places is, is the core. Not, not talent, not ability, um, but actually being able to turn up and do things. I was once going through, I think, a bit of a, one of my, my numerous crises on where I should be in the world. So I, I grew up in Armidale, I became a Christian when I was 22. Uh, I'm actually reconnecting with, with one of my high school friends. She's a missionary in Cambodia. And we haven't seen each other face-to-face since high school. Um, but she was one of the Christian crowd, and I wasn't one of the Christian crowd. And I remember her one day telling her that I was a Christian, I was doing, doing ministry, and she goes, are you serious, like you? 
thanks. She goes, you know, amongst our friends, we said you were the least likely person to ever become a Christian. I was like, really? Like, I don't think I was bad. It's like, not bad. It's just like there's nothing about you that would make us think you'd ever become a Christian. Um, so I left, I left when I was about uh, 22. Um, so right after I became a Christian, I, I left and traveled the world and then ended up in, in Philadelphia working mostly amongst kids in gangs um, in, a, in a small community called Kensington. And then... Uh, Transferring from there into a Latino community, so mostly Puerto Rican, that's where my kids grew up, so my kids grew up in a Spanish-speaking community. And from there, um, got into, into more teaching and consulting and helping. I found that I wasn't so good at the actual doing of ministry, so you teach, right, when you're not so good at the, the doing. Um, no offense to school teachers, I think you're all amazing, but um, I'm, I'm not talented in, in my daily stuff, uh, so there was a going, this sense of going. What did it mean to go? And I was going through this crisis because my mum was still in, in Armadale. Um, I was working in Philadelphia. Every year I'd come back. And, and I got to this point, I was like, I don't know where I'm supposed to be. Should I be back in, in, in Australia where everybody keeps telling me we need more missionaries and why, do we, why are you on the other side of the world? We need you back here. Um, and then I was in a place where I was actually seeming to things were working and, and things were growing. And so I came back one time. And uh, I'd hurt my leg in, uh, I used to do martial arts, I'd hurt in, in a martial arts tournament. And uh, my town had like three or four Christian physical therapists. And I thought, I don't want to see one because I don't, I don't want to see any Christians right now because I'm so confused. Where should I be in the world? And I was just like, God, this, I'm just tired of going through this feeling of should I be here or should I be there? So I go to the university to see a physical therapist. Um, and... The only one that I didn't know was a Christian, so I thought this was good. And, and every day I'm watching, I'm getting treatment going in day after day. I'm watching her treat everybody with this love and compassion. I was like, wow, like, it's quite amazing. Um, quite amazing the way that she cares for people. And uh, finally she asked me what, what I do, and I'm like, oh, I just work with youth. I didn't tell her I was a Christian or anything else. And she goes, oh, I've got a friend who works with youth. Gives me his name. I'm like, yeah, I know him, right? He's a Christian minister who works with youth. She's like, you're a Christian? I said, yeah, I'm a Christian. Um, right, lots of excitement here. And then she says, what do you do? I tell her, and she's like, oh, wow, well, I'm going to treat you for free. I was like, great, here we go. Um, I don't know where I'm supposed to be, but this woman didn't matter where she was. She was loving and caring people in the name of Christ where she was, right? So, so the sense of going, she was going out through her daily job in, into the community, and so for some, going means traveling across to the other side of the world. That's often what we think about when we think about missions. And, and you've got some great um, people that you support uh, who've sent to the other side of the world. You've got other great people like Juan and Vicky who put most of us to shame. Um, you know, my wife was saying the other day, we're friends with Juan and Vicky and, and our kids play together every Sunday and um, we're on the same team. I'd say, like, I know one of my neighbors a little bit and the other ones kind of. One and Vicky know their whole street and the next street over. They'll tell you everybody's names, tell you everything that's going on in their life. Um, they're amazing, right? Um, they're amazing at doing those things. And they're on the other side of the country. And then there's missions that's local and at home. And uh, what's it mean to be local and be involved in missions or, or ministry? Um, and the first part is Going. It's going. And so where do we go? What's going look like? Uh, 
So one of the teams I worked on in the US, we, we did a lot around community research and understanding who all the different people groups were. And uh, our senior minister, Lou Santano, just a dynamic guy, uh, he would always say, if, if somebody isn't reaching this group in our community, if we're not reaching this group, who is? And we start to go through things, right? We think about our neighbors. Um, but he'd go even further. He'd say, well, what about the people working in the stores? They're part of our community. Even if they don't live here, they're part of our community. What about all the school teachers who come in and teach in our schools? And, and we worked with some really rough schools. I mean, uh, one of the high schools we worked with had uh, only 5% of kids ever finished year 12. Um, our local high school, less than 3% of kids went to, to university from that. Um, not a lot of violence in the schools because it happened in the street, very, very violent communities. Uh, so lots of kids, I want to say lots of kids... I'd say all the kids that I've ever worked with would have lost friends to gun violence. Um, I probably five or six kids from my youth group were murdered over, over the years through gun violence. So lots of stuff, lots of chaos. He goes, but the, the teachers, they come in every day. He said, what if you put on a banquet for all the school teachers at the school? I was like, all right, we'll put on a banquet for all the school teachers. And we had the kids in, in the church who were involved. They, they would come and they would serve. And we'd just say, we love you. We care about you. Thank you for coming. Um, and then one day, we were having some issues with the garbage collectors. They used to always yell at us because we put out heaps of garbage. And he goes, Carl, I bet you, what are you going to do, do for them? I said, nothing. And he goes, no, no, go, go get them something to drink and something to eat. I was like, seriously? Did you hear the way they spoke? He goes, yeah, yeah, what's God say? What do you do to treat your enemies? He goes, oh, love. All right. And he said, what about the police officers? I said, now you've crossed the line. We were in a combative relationship with police officers in our community. It was, it's very tense. And if you've seen any US stuff, you know what the tension is, uh, particularly if you're in a black community. It's high tension. I was like, seriously, I don't think we can love the police officers. They're a little too far away from us. He goes, we're going to love those police officers. And we started an event. I think we had maybe 100 police turn up the first year. I think he has 800 turn up every year now and just says, we love you. He gives them these chintzy little plastic medals and these little certificates, and you see these big, tough police officers walking out with tears in their eyes and saying, no one has ever made me feel special like this before. Um, everybody in the community, everybody in the community deserves to have the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. But it begins with going. And so in our place, we say some really simple things, and this is what I'd love to give you as homework for the course of the week and to come back next week and report. We're doing this at our church at the moment is where can you go in your local community? Where do you shop? Where do you eat? If you've got kids, where do they go to school? Where do they play? How is that all intentional in how we engage people? Oftentimes, we make it really complicated. We think about all these complex ways to do things, and we think about all these different programs to do. But the simplicity of life is how do you integrate into the local communities? So I joined a cycling club because almost everybody in that cycling club is not a Christian. So I get all these opportunities to be around Christians. Even though I'm not good, they're going to at least know when they ask me what I do, and I, I won't lie. I'll say, you know, I work for the church. They at least know I'm a Christian, right? It's the first stage. I'm out there. And I spend three days a week out there with non-Christians on the bike. We intentionally shop locally where we are. Now, we live in a community where if we went outside our community, we'd find lots of better products, cheaper products. Um, we live in, a, in, I mean, in Mount, in Mount Druid is, is uh, Sydney's poorest communities, and we live in the poorest section of that. Uh, my wife's a school teacher. She works in one of the three toughest schools in Sydney. Um, and one of her favorite things is she runs into parents. And she says the encounter kind of usually goes like this. It's, she sees one of her kids from class over there, and they're tugging on their mum, and they're like pointing, that's my teacher. And the mum's like, no, nah, it's not your teacher. It's like, yes, yeah, my teacher. And the mum comes over and says, 
you don't teach my son, do you? And she goes, yeah, yeah, he's in my class. I'm not going to tell you about him, right, because he's one of the, the challenged kids right now. Um, nah, he's great. And the mom's like, you shop where I shop? You go to the same shops that I go to? And you're a school teacher? It's like, yeah, I go to the same shops because this is my community. So we often pick places that aren't the best. Um, I usually pick the cheapest, but that aren't the best. We drive different ways when we go backwards and forwards um, to places so that we engage with our community, so that we see the things in our community. We move away from saying, what's the best deal for me and what's my favourite places, to what's the most strategic things for us to be involved with. And for us, it's shopping locally, doing things locally, putting our kids in local sports teams. Um, Not the best team, but the local sports team. Uh, It's finding all those things locally. And so the homework for this week is... What are some of the things locally where you just encounter people? Not even getting to the doing, not even what you do with people when you meet them and how you talk to them about Jesus or any of that kind of stuff, but just how do you meet people? How do you see people? Do you join local organizations, sit on the school board, sit on places where you actually encounter other people um, who aren't Christians? What kind of job do you do? Um, How do you build relationships in those jobs where you're around non-Christians, people who haven't heard about Jesus? There's always barriers to doing this. Um, The first one most people say is they're not trained. And I say, well, look at the Bible. Very few people in the Bible ever had any kind of training other than Jesus saying, it's time to go, let's go. You see the disciples. We've said in in seminaries now, well, we say in the Sydney Anglicans, if you know Sydney Anglicans, they're, they're conservative evangelical. They set the bar really high. And one day I was saying to some ministers, I was like, I don't think any of the disciples would have ever been ordained as a Sydney Anglican minister. And someone says, well, Jesus wouldn't have made it through either. (laughs) The bar that we've set really high um, discourages people. So I want to say the bar is is as low as it can get. It's just going. It's just simply going. When you leave this building, where do you go? What do you do? Um, When you have people over to your house, do you have non-Christians over? Do you invite people in? Uh, Do you sit on the sidelines of a sporting game and talk to the non-Christians that are there? Um, How do you do some of those simple things? Sometimes we feel like it's, it's, we're fearful um, of things. And so I'm going to say, let's remove that barrier right now. You're not even going to tell anybody about Jesus. You're just going to meet people. That's the first stage. Just meet people and talk to them about anything. Talk to them about the football. Why your team is not going to win this year. Um, talk to them about why you think they will. Talk to them about the weather. Talk to them about their jobs. Talk to them about life. Um, all the things that people normally talk to. Um, just to begin with that. It's just the going part. Some people feel embarrassed. Not much embarrassment talking about just everyday life. Uh, Everyday life we can talk about. I'll leave you with this part. Um, If you wonder about your qualifications, so I, I probably in Philadelphia still would be considered, even though I live on this side of the world now, right? still considered probably the, the top networker in the city, um, the person that, that I still most weeks get um, questions from people in Philadelphia about how they connect, how they think of ministry, how they, they do these things. Uh, I've taught at, at numerous places and spoken on numerous stages about what it means to be invested in local communities. Um, and so I'm always reflecting on just how unqualified I am I mean, I came from 10,000 miles away, uh, so about as far away as you could, from a culture about as far distant as you could from inner-city US culture. 
Um, I had no degree. I was a university dropout. I had no seminary training. Uh, I wasn't in any sense qualified. I think when I got hired in full-time ministry, I'd gone to church a total of six times in my life, uh, and that was about it. Um, So my qualifications were about as bad as you can get. Um, But the one thing that I was willing to do was to turn up and then let God do all the amazing stuff that he would do. Uh, And so I'll tell you a bit more about that next week and then talk a bit more about what we can do when we get there to these places. So can I pray for us? God, I thank you. I thank you that uh, you've filled us with the the scriptures with stories about people who went, um, and then you do these amazing things when people arrive there. Lord, and I pray this week we can just all be thinking about places we can go. Um, What's that mean to go? Uh, What's that mean to get outside the confines of the church or outside our comfort zones and just interact with people on a daily basis? Uh, Father, also just pray for the the missions here for the week um, and the people involved. Amen.